0: I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome and thanks for joining us. I just finished talking to Dana Simmons about her new book, Vital Minimum, Need Science and Politics in Modern France. This came out with University of Chicago Press in 2015 and it's a fabulous book. What a fascinating project. So what the book does is it looks at a very particular context in modern France. I'm mostly in the 19th century, but extending beyond that. And it looks at the emergence of a particular object, a notion, a concept that many of us may very much take for granted. I certainly did before I read this book. And that is the notion of a need. Related to that, the notion of a minimum. Specifically, or sort of, um, you know, basically put, What is a desire? How do you differentiate between a a need, a desire, a want, a luxury, and why does that matter? What Simmons shows us in the course of the book is that it matters a great deal, and it mattered in terms of life and death in a very particular context in modern France. And one of the really great things about the book is that it's very focused on this context of French history and the interaction between the biological and social and economic and political sciences and ways of construing life and humanity and the individual and measurement in this context. But as we get toward the end of the book, you'll see and you'll hopefully understand from um, even just the interview today that their consequences of this case study are very, very broad-reaching, and understanding how something so simple can be such a a product of a particular historical circumstance and can have such extreme consequences can really reshape how you think about welfare, society, what it means to be a human, what life is, what need feels like, is, means, um, why that matters— today in our lives and also moving forward. So it's a very disciplined, carefully constructed, carefully written, carefully argued, beautiful little book on a very particular topic that has broad, broad, broad consequences for anybody who's going to take the time to read it. I think it's an important book. It's a pleasure to read, and I highly, highly recommend it. So it was obviously, as you're probably getting from this intro, a great pleasure to read the book. It was a great, great pleasure to talk with Dina about it. And I hope you both have a chance to pick up the book and to read it. And also, I hope you enjoy the conversation. I definitely did. And as ever, I'm very, very grateful for your support and for listening. Enjoy. I'm here today to talk with Dana Simmons about her new book, Vital Minimum. Welcome to New Books in STS, Dana, and thanks very much both for writing a really inspiring book that's also a super pleasure to read and also for making time to talk with me about it today. I'm looking forward. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start by talking about how you came to the field. Let's just kind of start big. What brought you to the history of science and how did you come to focus on French science in particular?
1: So I initially studied architecture and printmaking. Um, and I went into a PhD sort of as a way to read and learn while making art. Um, but I soon found myself crafting more words than images. Um, and I've continued ever since. But I, I would say that um, something of a sensibility of the architect remains with me, um, when I start a project, I tend to be driven by a sort of impression, a formal hunch, or a kind of aesthetic logic, um, sort of sensing that particular formations or repetitions are connected in some way, um, but not entirely knowing how. Um, so, um, I although I don't, although I'm writing with words now, I... I um, instead of making images, I, I still have I still start in a sort of similar method um, as I did as a as an architecture student, and and I love STS science studies history of science because um, it has something of the same feeling of knowledge creation in the making. Um, there's a real sensitivity in the field to knowing while making, um, through making, in the choice of materials and sites, um, in the scale of work or the sequence of research. Um, and, I, and I found as an architect that sometimes the hand or the eye knows before the mind can articulate. Um, and something about science studies resonates with that for me. I totally agree. I, mean,
0: I think that's a super um, insightful and beautiful way of putting um, one of the things that's so great about the field. So let's just kind of go with that. Um, I'll just set the stage a little bit so listeners know a little bit about the book, um, and then I I'd love to know what kind of intuition and what spark brought you to this. So the introduction of the book that we're talking about today opens us into a set of questions that really set the stage for the rest of the work to come. Simply put, what is a need? What is a want? What is a desire? What is a luxury? Now, these are questions that many of us probably take for granted, but they're products of very particular histories. They're really objects that emerge from a very specific context. And the answers are not at all obvious. So the book traces the emergence of these objects, really the, the kind of history of these concepts in a very particular setting. And it's about, um, as you put it early in the book, a technopolitics of human need. Okay, so how did you come to this Particular topic, Dana, and was there a kind of kind of intuition as you were describing that first led you
1: to what ultimately became this project? Yeah, so I began the project as a pursuit of a minimum as an object, and I and I first encountered it actually. Coincidentally, in, a, in an architecture book um, by Walter Gropius, the modernist German architect, who made reference to um, architecture for existence minimum. And I found that figure fascinating um, and followed through his footnotes, some citations to a sociologist, um, and, and began to try and pursue a figure, a minimum, um, wherever I could find it. Um, it was a sort of bricolage, I guess, um, a fascination with a figure. Um, and, and the sort of um, filling in of questions and worlds happened later, happened after that initial process. I mean, I went all over the place. I, I looked in housing in the 1950s and 60s. I was fascinated for a while by... Enlightenment astronomy and the maxima and minima of planetary ellipses um, and their regularity. Um, And it took me a long time to sort of figure out what the historical logic of this figure could be. Mm
0: -hmm. So why France? Why this particular context for this study?
1: Ah, well, that one is easy. I fell in love with a Frenchman. (laughs) And, and, you know, I, my friend Joan Donovan said the other day, so many of us end up in our, specifically studying topics that have something, I mean, their logic comes from our personal lives. Mm-hmm. No matter how, you know, we sort of throw into uh, graduate school and, and enter into a disciplinary formation, but the what? Of what we work on often will come from you know I fell in love with some someone I, I I took a great class with a particular teacher in in, in undergraduates um, it, and the the what is very sort of um, mysterious.
0: Absolutely, I mean we're we're human holes, right, who are making these decisions. And it's often after the fact that through a process of storytelling that, you know, we create these stories that are about the whys and that are about the logics, but really um, it's a project of a particular being moving through time and space, right, and things happening that put us onto one path or the other.
1: Right. I mean, as much as I would like to sort of claim that I had a, a clearly articulated analytical and political program from the outset. That took years. (laughs) And that would probably be much less interesting,
0: right? So this did start out as, so this is the first monograph, right? Yes. So this did start out as a dissertation project that then was transformed into a book. So can you talk a little bit about that transformation? Like specifically, were there any uh, important ways for you that the way you were structuring, building, thinking about the project changed from one form to the other?
1: Yes, it changed profoundly. Um, and I think a lot of it had to do with becoming a historian. Um, that is, learning to build worlds around the instantiations of this figure that I had uncovered. Um, the dissertation was sort of a, a catalog of all of these things with, you know, five or six potential analytical frameworks that I sort of threw in. Um, and and the work of creating a book is a work of, of of building worlds and of and of finding finding a story in the world into which my particular story is a part. Um, I think that was really for me the the most challenging and interesting move movements was to um, was to think of this as a piece in a world, a piece of a world. Um, and to figure out the logic of how that fit. Mm -hmm.
0: So for others who might be going through that process or looking ahead to that process right now, what were some of the most important um, things for you that helped you do that? Sort of what was perhaps most formative for you as you moved to create those
1: worlds um, with the book and in the book? I really had to be forced into it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I had to have people read the manuscript and say, this is not a book. (laughs) (laughs) And go back and try again. Um, And after several iterations of this, you know, uh, retrospectively, I realized that's what I was doing. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, so the book
0: itself is beautiful and it's really carefully structured and it's really compellingly argued. So let's get right into it. So you, in the introduction, you lay out um, right from the beginning an argument that really runs through the whole book, and I'm just going to lay that out right now. A science of human needs undergirded the modern wage economy and the welfare state. And you talk throughout the book about the ways that French human scientists, and these range from chemists, anthropologists, doctors, sociologists, economists, um, amateur data gatherers, trade unions, and as we'll talk about in a moment, agronomists, attempted to measure human needs believing that social organization should be directed according to scientific principles. And we'll see that play out over the course of the chapters of the book. The book book looks very carefully at the history in France, um, right, and in particular of the scientific problem of subsistence. How do you convert wages and workers' wages into vitality, into life? Okay, so chapter two looks at the influence of sciences and of chemistry in particular on French science and politics. The chapter argues very explicitly that agronomists may have been the most important, as you put it here, the most important political economists working in the mid-19th century. So maybe let's start there. Um, Why, or can you talk a little bit about the importance of agronomy and agronomists to um, political economy in this period? What, for you, is most important for us to understand about the importance of agronomists here?
1: So I think um, what I'm trying to get at, really, with this chapter and, and with the book in general, is that science, and I think agronomists are key figures here, problematize the contradictions of capital. So scientists articulated this equation of life- and need of life and wages, and did so in a very systematic fashion um, and very conscious. Um, agronomists are, are essential figures because they, by definition, straddled these worlds of, um, of chemistry, of uh, the life sciences, of natural history, and social history, economics. Um, they had to think about how much things cost. Uh, that 's part of their job right is to um, help farmers to rationalize their production um, to maximize yield and to minimize cost um, so they they by profession were ideally situated to grapple with this question that began to emerge in the mid nineteenth century as French populations um, as, as the French society shifted toward wage labor, when half of the French society, for the first time, began to work for wages. Um, This was not only a social issue, a political issue, it was a scientific issue, and agronomists recognized this. So one of the
0: ways that it becomes a scientific issue um, is based on the work of Antoine Lavoisier. So he's working on respiration, he's developing an animal economy that's based on understanding um, and studying the essential life processes of nutrition and respiration. Now, his work becomes the basis for thinking about, as you show here, not just animals, but also human societies. So at this point, how does Lavoisier's chemistry translate into ideas and concerns about imbalance of workers' needs and
1: means? So much of this is about the dilemma that Lavoisier posed in the middle of the French Revolution, surrounded by bread riots in the 1790s, um, that there is an imbalance between the social organization, the distribution of resources through wages and work, um, and physical bodily needs and expenditures. Um, How to convert wages into life. And Lavoisier is recognized universally as the sort of father of modern chemistry, um, but I want to argue that he also first articulates a fundamental political issue and, and gives a sort of manifesto that scientists are the figures who are best qualified to, um, to intervene and to design a social structure to um, monitor and shape the distribution of resources and wages um, according to natural principles. Um, and agronomists uh, in the 1840s sort of revived Lavoisier um, and his methods, but also his political program. <laughs> So one of the, I mean, you take
0: us into some fascinating figures here. Um, There's one figure who is imprisoning his pigs to measure their feed and their excrement, right, and doing these kind of calculations. And at the end of the day, um, as we move from this chapter, the farm has become a model for managing scarce resources in times of economic crisis. And the agronomic body, as you put it here, was used as a scientific model for the social economic body and the theory of wages. And we see how that plays out as we move to the next chapter. So chapter three shows the ways that the measures that are adopted in the chapter we just talked about were applied by state officials under the July monarchy and the Second Empire. And you have here this fascinating um, set of entries into spaces of prisons, um, spaces of school children, spaces of hospital patients. It's really, really fascinating. Um, And there are a lot of studies here that involve the weighing and measuring of the diets, the inputs and the outputs of these figures, um, of these types of people. So one of the things that's happening here brings us back to concerns about built structures, right? Architecture and built space. And this is the notion of air rations um, that is built into the way prison cells and then potentially private housing are conceptualized. So can you talk about this idea of um, air rations and kind of what's going on with prisons as that's shaping the story
1: here? Yes, and I, I love this section because uh, as a graduate student, I so identified with this poor young <laughs> chemist um, whose doctoral advisor makes him sit in a prison cell for 10 hours with a bowl of shit underneath his chair <laughs> and varies the air supply. <laughs> Sounds um, like graduate school a little
0: bit. Right? Yeah, just
1: <laughs> I mean... My, dis- there's- my dissertation advisor is marvelous. <laughs> She's in no way um, reflected by this. But somehow, you know, that really sort of um, it resonated for me. Um, and, and, and the reason why Dumas, who is this doctor, uh, uh, Jean-Baptiste Dumas, the, the dissertation advisor, is, is subjecting um, Félix Leblanc to this experiment, um, besides the fact that he had an extraordinarily sensitive nose, Um, is that the French state was seeking to establish scientific standards for um, solitary confinement. Uh, They were changing the the architectural design of prisons um, in a story we all know well to um, more rationalized, panopticon-style solitary cells uh, and wanted to know what the dimensions of that cell ought to be. Uh, And that measurement then... Um, and others like it become um, have a have a post history, which is they become the basis for housing regulations um, through somewhat in the nineteenth century, but really um, that takes off in the twentieth century. And I didn't have space in the book to include this, but they become then uh, the foundation for uh, modern modernist architects. Um, Walter Gropius's existence minimum actually is referring back to those studies. Um and the the International Congress for Modern Architecture grasps on those studies as a um as a tool for establishing a new basis for architecture that's rational, stripped down, um and modern. So it's not just air
0: that's being rationed and space that's being rationed um, in these studies of prisons and prisoners, it's also food. And you show here um, in this chapter that debates over and research into the meals of prisoners really wind up becoming part of the conversation about standardizing workers' wages. So how does that um, shift happen? How does um, a conversation and debates over um, prison meals
1: become a conversation about the wages of workers? So it's really fascinating to me that some of the same figures, um, agronomists, sort of pop up. Um, there's one in particular, Adrien de Gasparin, who was a prefect of the city of Lyon um, in the 1830s during the textile wage riots, um, went on uh, to, uh, was promoted to the Minister of the Interior, um, and then begins, turns his attention to prison diets. Um, into rationalizing prison diets. He, he then goes on to write a manual of agronomy, which is one of the first um, that articulates, um, it, it's really the first text that I found that articulates, um, tries to establish a scientific equation between the amount of food necessary to carry out a specific unit of work. Uh, and, and so you see these ties um, via agronomy um, to labor unrest, um, the question of subsistence, which is both an individual bodily question and a social question, um, and state intervention, the sort of um, early what I call the the uh, technoscience of the welfare state, which begins to emerge well before welfare as we know it appears. So as
0: we move from um, this chapter to the next, we move into a chapter that looks very carefully at the origins of the social survey of the 19th century and the obsession with measuring and categorizing human needs. And this figure of the need um, is going to come up um, in a moment. So you look here um, at the work of uh, a particular thinker who writes a work in 1839 called On Indigence who's modeling his human science on the zoology of Georges Cuvier. Now, Cuvier and Lamarck, um, in this uh, period, or sort of as part of this story, had been debating the role of needs in the animal economy. And the zoological debate winds up influencing theories of social welfare. So this idea of needs is really, really important. And this is really the chapter where it kind of emerges as being really foundational for the whole study. So can you talk a little bit about how The need, the figure of the need becomes a foundational category here, um, and how it moves from uh, Cuvier's work into this work on indigence and this kind of social theory and social welfare.
1: Yeah, so what really struck me um, in researching this is um, the extent to which debates about um, the nature of animal bodies um, were always also about capital and about the human about the social. Um, so, uh, Georges Cuvier and Jean-Baptiste Lamarck are engaged in a debate over the nature of animal bodies um, in which Cuvier is convinced that a- animals are uh, fixed types. That is, um, particular, a particular form of bodily organization responds to a particular environment and is fixed. Um, he's famous, right, for, um, for the phrase attributed to him that if, if, um, you show, show him a bone and he'll reconstruct the entire animal skeleton. Mm-hmm. Um, because every element is functional and every element responds to a particular bodily organization that for Cuvier is fixed, um, and reflects that animal's needs. Um, Lamarck, on the other hand, um, is invested in a model of transformation and of progress. Um, and he very explicitly places needs um, at the source of this um, uh, of a physiological, a physiological change and transformation, um, which he then also applies to humans. That is, um, for example, humans, he says, de- develop the need to speak um, to communicate and so our tongues, our throats, um, all of the organs involved in speech um, began to accumulate energy and to grow and to transform and to develop new capabilities in response to that need. So, needs for just as they are for economists in this period, needs are foundational for comparative anatomy A- and they become foundational then for social models. Um, uh, joseph de jando, who's the author of on Indi- indigenous um, is is an associate of Cuvier's um, and and draws directly from this model of fixed types um, to to create what he calls a scale of civilization right
0: right and this is a racial scale of civilization right i mean so how does how does this become uh, sort of about race and races of people
1: so, I mean, I think that, you know, the derivation from anatomy tells us um, something already, right, that he's looking at people like species, mm-hmm. um, which one can classify on a hierarchy of function, which is fixed um, and which responds to the particular environments in which the, a given species has um, is it finds itself, mm-hmm. um, Gerando then translates this to a measure of indigence Um, when he he goes to work for the French government um, in this in uh, developing a census Um, and through that applies his racial categorization um, to levels of poverty within France. And this scale of civilization then becomes uh, a scale of indigence, a measure of indigence or measure of misery. There's some
0: fascinating um, materials that you describe that he wrote in this chapter. So, just to kind of mark for listeners, um, you describe his Visitor to the Poor Guide for Charitable Investigators, which measures degrees of misery. Um, and I just want to mark that because any of us who have ever tried to buy plane tickets, um, <laughs> there's, that's now a measure, right? Like some of the uh, budget airline websites will order your options based on degree of misery, uh, literally, right? <laughs> or degree. Of so I really liked that part, and it really spoke to me on a very personal level. Okay, so as we move from this um, to the later chapters, we move um, to kind of a second part of the book. The remaining chapters of the book, chapters five through nine, really look closely at the history of the vital minimum, right? This is the figure um, from which the book gets its name from the 19th century, Long Depression, as you put it, through the fourth Republic. Um, Now, this notion became a cornerstone of wage and welfare policy throughout this time. And it's really, really fascinating. The fifth chapter looks specifically at the part of the story um, that's around food rationing and food rationing becomes important here because it becomes a precursor to what eventually is going to become an effort to establish a national minimum wage. Now, an, a really important part of this story of food rationing is the story of the Siege of Paris in the 1870 to 1871. So can you take us into the scene where food rationing becomes an important issue during this siege? And basically, what do we need to know about what's happening here um, that's really important for us to understand where we're going to go next?
1: So the Prussians surround Paris um, in 1870 and lay siege um, for, for several months. Um, and um, the, the Second Empire has collapsed. Napoleon uh, III has fled. Um, a republic is formed within the city of Paris. And they are charged with organizing the distribution of resources to the population of the city. And what I find interesting about this moment is um, two things. Um, there are debates emerge about how to distribute these resources, on what grounds, um, and there are debates about citizenship. Um, and what I find very important here is that this is where where what kind of life is worth providing for is really explicitly articulated and debated in public. Um, so only the lives of people who are useful to this state are given priority, are acknowledged to deserve resources, to deserve rations. Um, a whole category, several categories of people are lumped together and called, quote-unquote, useless mouths, which is a really powerful um, phrase and actually was taken up again uh, by the Nazis in um, in the 20th century, to describe um, those people whose lives are not worth living. Um, in in, during the siege, that category referred to um, the very wealthy uh, who are not contributing to the defense of the city and who are fleeing the city, um, and to the very poor who are so indigent. A lot of women and children who are indigent and who are not contributing to the defense of the city. Um, they were considered um, to not deserve rations or to deserve the very least amount um, necessary, whereas the active male defender of the city um, had what claimed a right to exist. Um, and, I, and that distinction um, continues on through the 20th century and beyond. Um, what kind of life is worth providing for? It's a, it's a productive life. Um, it's a useful life.
0: And this, um, you mentioned it's a male figure, right? Yes. And so this um, here, and I think we're going to see this um, throughout the rest of the chapters, there's a really strong gendering of what's happening. Um, that's actually a really, really important part of the story. So it's not just um, a useful figure. It's an explicitly coded male. Um, and so we're going to see how that plays out because part of the story becomes really, really interesting in terms of the history, not just of gender, but of families and the notion of a family and the relationship between the individual um, and the notion of a family.
1: Yeah. And this gets to what I was just saying about life as well, um, in that um, the, the, the life that we're talking about when we equate life and wages. Um, at one point, I I, I developed this thought that the opposite of that life is not death. Mm-hmm. It's not life versus death. It's life versus productivity mm-hmm. or use function. Um, and so um, part of that form of life is first to replace the, the bodily substance that's lost uh, through work, but it's also to replace the, the worker, right? It's the, it's the reproduction of labor in both senses, in the body and um, through the, um, th- through the creation of children who will replace workers when they're no longer able to work. Um, and that's where um, gender plays out most powerfully. That's right.
0: So as we move, uh, so we're going to get there, right? And we're going to get to more of a um, kind of an explicit discussion of families and of women. But to get there, we get to a next chapter that looks at the figure of the vital minimum as it traveled across realms that included political economy, uh, social Catholicism, Marxism, social statistics, and more. So the French welfare state first mobilized the vital minimum as an individual living wage, and in World War I, over the course of World War I, the vital minimum develops into a family allowance. Okay, so this is really interesting, and one of the interesting transitions that we see happening in this chapter, one of many, is a transition from a conversation about physiology to a conversation about statistics. So you take us into a transformation around the way wages specifically were being debated that again is moving us from physiological to statistical terms. How is that
1: happening and what's important about that transition to statistics for us to understand here? Yes, yeah, statistics are really interesting, and they, they actually bring us back to the debate we were talking about between Cuvier and Lamarck, uh, because if one believes that needs can transform, that needs develop, that bodies change over time, um, and that needs change over time, that there's a there's progress, um, then fixed physiological measures can't capture them, Um uh, And workers very early on from the Go recognize this um, and push for the creation of statistical measures of need. That is um, collecting family budgets uh, of workers in different regions, in different countries um, to compare um, both over across space geographically, but also across time, the growth and development of need. Um, And this, That that distinction, which is formed in the mid-19th century, um, grows ever more pronounced. um, And workers' unions, um, the International Working Men's Association, the the, the very first thing it does is, um, at its first meeting, the members vote for a statistical committee to be formed. Um, So statistics become attached to a progressive model, a social model of need. Um, in opposition to physiological measures, which tend to refer to more fixed uh, needs. So you mentioned the
0: family budget, um, the importance of the family budget, and that's really, really important here. Now, as any of our listeners, um, including, and and of course I sympathize with this, as any of our listeners probably have experienced, um, when you're sitting down to create a budget for yourself, um, there are different ways of thinking about what constitutes a need right? Does that kale and feta scone a need or is that just something that I want? You know, do I need that extra pair of jeans from Madewell or do I just want it? And the discussion about um, sort of ways to distinguish needs from desires becomes a really important part of this story. So can you talk about that? Sort of how were um, the people who are debating this, debating the distinction between needs and desires um, in this context?
1: This starts to become uh, very dangerous. Some, some economists uh, and social reformers start to think. Because if needs are progressive, if they are constantly expanding, what controls them? On what basis can one organize a society around um, needs which are ever-expanding? Um, so Émile Durkheim with his notion of anomie, um, it articulates this perhaps the um, best he, can, he worries that social stability is falling apart, that as rural uh, folk move into the cities, take on wage work um, and become lured by consumer attractions, uh, their needs are expanding the, the, the social the, the set of socially acceptable goods which someone in their station should have access. Um, grows and uncontrollably, um, and he's and he's very worried that this is going to introduce a level of of, of social instability that that will be uncontrollable.
0: So, welfare programs um, that kind of emerge from these conversations are attempting to go um, with, as you put it here beyond the wage in satisfying and also in managing workers' needs. So, how are welfare programs here? going beyond um, thinking about wages as a way to
1: manage workers' needs, and what's important about that in this context? So one of the basic problems that um, scientists or social reformers thinking about wages ran into in the 19th century um, is that it's all very well and good to establish a scientific measure of need, um, but one can't do anything with this, Um if wages are being set by the free market? Um, and how how can a society guarantee the reproduction of labor if wages, that is the stuff of life, depend entirely on, on the float floating, you know, variation of a market? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the solution which uh, social reformers begin to think about in the late 19th century and then is Put into place uh, by the French state during the First World War is to divide the wage into different parts so that one part floats on the free market, but another part is specifically designed to respond to needs. And this becomes and these needs, as you point out, are measured um, by, by with the unit of the family in mind. Um, And so you end up with a wage structure in which you have a base wage, um, and then you have what are are come to be known as family allowances. And these are considered, they're legally um, identified as charity, as donations, um, and then morph into welfare payments later in in the 20th century. Um, So this is a structural way to try and resolve the dilemma of, how to guarantee the reproduction of labor in a free market. Thank you. So as we move to chapter seven, the science of man, we move to a chapter that looks very
0: closely at the measurement of needs in occupied France um, in the 1940s. So there are two main case studies in this chapter that you look at, um, the case study of food rationing, and then also the vital minimum wage. And one of the things that's happening in this chapter that's really, really interesting is a move toward a kind of study of and a categorization of biological human types. So you put it, um, or as you put it here in the chapter, the 20th century European welfare state was as much a racial eugenic regime as a social democratic one. So can you talk about that? Um, in what way was this a racial eugenic regime, and, and what's important for us to understand about that in the context of the larger argument of the book?
1: Yeah, so part of this is a sort of intervention into the French French, mm-hmm. right, which is, um Vichy the period of of the occupation occupied France um, is not some sort of aberration he's not some sort of historical exception. Um, the French too have this debate right the 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 unique right, path, the unique moment um, in fact, there are enormous continuities, and welfare logic is one of them so that's one aspect of this uh, and the other aspect um, is um, that Welfare logics, part of the science of welfare, it comes from these fixed biological types, um, going right back to Jean Do, right, and the racial hierarchy, um, which he established in the early 19th century. Um, and, and I find fascinating that, um, that the foundation for um, the study of human problems, um, which is a, a uh, Vichy-funded um, scientific, social scientific uh, kind of sociobiological institute repeats some of the same experiments um, that Giando tried to undertake to go off and find sort of primitive rural populations that have not been sullied by, um, by the growth of urban consumerism to understand what, what uh, to sort of identify an, an originary pure type Um, that can then be used to develop um, biological, racial biological difference.
0: So one of the really interesting things that's going to come up in the next chapter, but that we can kind of start talking about now, is an idea of a unit of analysis, right? What is the unit that you're measuring and how is that unit defined? And that becomes really, really um, formative and really... Um, kind of uh, determinative of what comes next, and here, um, you know, so you've brought up the French Foundation for the Study of Human Problems and their kind of project to study the requirements of human types. So, how is a human type defined as a hu- as a unit of analysis here, and what's important about that?
1: Um, so, uh, these. These fixed types then this this hierarchy, this this scale of civilization um, then gets grafted onto um, a, a kind of sociobiological typology of, of French citizens and others um, whereby particular types of people are understood to have particular needs and economist Francois Perrou, who I, I identify as sort of the organic intellectual of, of Vichy social policy um wants to establish a social, social policy um, that's grounded entirely on scientific knowledge, on, on a scale of needs whereby resources are allocated according to a scale of sociobiological types. Um, and he draws from the history of economics, of economic theory, um, uh, of marginal utility, um, you know where uh, sort of which is cons- which is all about cons- concerned with um, establishing hierarchies of need and wants to give that content so d- under the Vichy state, um, enormous amounts of data uh, w- was collected um, about um, people's nutritional habits, um, their housing. Um, their family uh, organization, um, just mounds and mounds of data. And Peru wanted to take this data and use it as the basis for um, establishing social policy.
0: Thank you so much. Okay, so now we move to Chapter 8. This is really fascinating because it's on one level a chapter that's about Um, an effort to set a model minimum wage. Um, We're going to talk about the SMIG, but it's also about defining the notion of a human person. Um, So these different figures that are mutually imbricated um, that seem like they're very different kinds of things, but that wind up being deeply, deeply enmeshed on both our focuses of, our foci of this chapter. So this chapter looks at deliberations of a committee of unions, of employers, of experts of various sorts who are appointed in 1951 to set a model minimum wage. Now, ultimately, this effort is going to fail and we'll get to that. But before we get to that, um, let's talk a little bit about this committee. Um, So just kind of broadly speaking, who are these people are appointed to this committee and why um, are they appointed to this particular committee to do this particular job?
1: Yeah, so I I mean, I never thought I was going to write an entire chapter about a bureaucratic committee. I mean, that sounds like the most boring thing one could possibly do. Um, But then I started looking at these deliberations and they're nuts. I mean, they they get down to what, what, what they are is that around the table, you have representatives of workers unions, of family associations, NGOs, um, uh, uh, employer organizations, um, large scale, small scale, rural, urban, and so on, um, and government administrators. And they're charged with establishing a model budget for a national minimum wage. Um, and you know they 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 come in thinking this is going to be very straightforward there's a guideline which is they need to establish what are the basic and elementary needs of a human person and it explodes i mean they start debate they they end up you know, discussing for hours whether someone needs one raincoat, like a, a a poor quality raincoat every year or a very good quality raincoat once every 10 years. Are they allowed to drink wine and coffee? Um, is that part of a nutritional requirement? Or should we just say it's a need because everybody does it in France? Like wine. Of course, that's a need. right? Mm-hmm. A bottle of wine a day is a need. <laughs> um, and actually, there are nutritional experts who come in and argue that. Yes, because French people drink a bottle of wine a day. We need to consider this a, a nutritional need. Um, and, and these, you know, or how much water should, should one have access to running water? Is that a need? Or a toilet? Is that a need? Um, how much heating should be considered a need? Newspapers, vacations, you know, cigars, it just, it goes all over the place. Mm-hmm
0: like try to walk into any kind of academic apartment and tell anybody standing or sitting there that coffee is not a need <laughs>
1: and back up and be prepared right. to be shouted out of the uh, out of the place right right well and i mean it's it's funny that it, those sorts of things end up really revealing quite a bit because on the one hand you have um nutritionists who are very committed to a physiological model and they will come in and say coffee has nutrition has no nutritional value it lacks it has no calories which is we like right today but at the time um would disqualify it. Um, and then you would have a different uh, nutritional expert who is more invested in a social statistical model who would come in and say, We must count this as a requirement because everyone drinks it.
0: That's right. And so not only are there differences of opinion that you're showing here and that you're um, kind of talking to us about right now between. Um, what we might consider to be, you know, psychological uh, minimum needs and physiological ones, um, different kinds of ways of construing what is necessary. But there are also really different ways here of thinking about and construing the basic unit of analysis. Okay. And as you're showing, um, in this chapter, this is ultimately one of the main reasons why this effort fails. So, one, uh, another way to put this is, um, no, regardless of how you're writing up and drawing up this budget, you know, coffee's there or not, wine is there or not, for this human person, um, who is this human person? Is it a family unit? Is it an unmarried, childless worker? Is it a man? Is it a woman? Why does it matter? So can you talk a little bit about that um, debate? Because that gets us right back into these issues that we've been talking about around you know, individual and family,
1: the gendered aspect of this, and, um, and so forth. Right. So even before they start getting into, can this person drink coffee or wine, they find themselves stuck around the question of what is a human person and, and actually satirical journals sort of mock them for this, right? Like these people are sitting around a table, you know, workers are waiting to have our minimum wage. And these people are sitting around a table trying to figure out what is a human, mm-hmm. you know, this is ridiculous. Um, but, but I think that really gets to, I mean, in a way they, they elaborate um, and make evidence um, the, the, the the basic problem underlying need, right? That um, need is always a natural and social category. Um, and it also is a category that does a particular work. It's designed to resolve contradictions of capital. Um, so once you start talking about, okay, so who is this person who has needs? Is it um, is it a, is it a male, a single male worker? Is it a family? Um, is it, um, is it non-gendered? Um, each, each one of those moves has consequences for the distribution of resources, for what qualifies as labor or as work, as, um, productive life. So as we
0: move, thank you very much, Dina. Uh, so as we move from here into the final chapter of the book, we move into a really fascinating space where you are looking at um, sort of where we've been and expanding out to consider some of the broader consequences and the broader meanings of this move that you've shown from natural to social epistemological to political, and you're taking us into some ways to keep thinking about this and extend it as we move forward. So what I'd like to do here is really just kind of turn um, things over to you and ask you, what do you think some of the most important consequences of this story are for for us as we look forward? And what are you most fascinated in as you think about um, where we might move next from this case study to thinking about this in broader terms?
1: So I've been really fascinated um, watching debates about minimum wages um, unfold over the past couple of years Um, and thinking about how these debates are fundamentally about how much life, how much living each one of us gets. Um, that, that, That wages come to um, it, that actually do embody, um, life, bits of life. Um, and, and how we define that life, do we define it as fixed, as hierarchical, um, as progressive and developing and socially defined, um, has an enormous impact on the kinds of claims that we can make about wages and about what is a minimum. Um, in in that um, in that context, um, and it also um, may, has made me very sensitive to um, thinking about life as unequally distributed. Um, that is, that some of us have you know bodies and minds and supplies of life for the worlds we live in, and and some of us do not. Um, I, I'm really taken by uh, economist Robert Fokel's notion of physio evolution. Um, where he points out that, in fact, the human body has changed profoundly over the past 150 years um, in response to greater nutritional um, input, but also to um, greater requirements for productivity. Um, And that this is, I really think that this is one of the elements of modern history that, perhaps is not made as explicit or sort of, you know, doesn't come to the fore as much as it ought to, that there is a form, a really fundamental form, of, of what people are calling now biocapital. It's physiological capital. Um, it's made by bodies, by um, industrial production, and by welfare, by the welfare state. Um, so, um Thinking about need expresses this um, mm-hmm. this contradiction, which is really, I think, at the heart of 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 the modern economy and of 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 um, of the history of the body.
0: So, there some of the ways just to kind of um, extend this a little bit um, into a you know another p- possible direction moving forward. Some of the really interesting things that you're pointing to in the book have to do with, you know, in the particular context you're looking at, the kinds of things that were being measured, right, that were taken to be relevant to this um, biosocial physiological, statistical um, body that we're seeing coming into being and going back out of being and and transforming over this period? Are there kinds of things that you see as we move forward? And as we move into thinking about, you know, techno-physio evolution and and sort of where to go next in debates about minimum wage and minimums and needs, are there kinds of things that are being measured or considered as part of um, are kind of a measurable lives, productive lives now in this context that are somehow new or different from the kinds of things that you saw, um, in your study. And I'm thinking particularly about, for example, conversations around sleep, right? I mean, like, mm-hmm. that's measurable now. I mean, there's certain things that we hear. Um, that are kind of um, in the social cultural landscape that we are uh, listeners and that you know the two of us are probably operating in are the different landscapes that are now part of the conversation um, that have to do with how we think about this moving forward so for you is there anything like that that really strikes you um, as the story continues into our present and future
1: yeah i mean that's that's fascinating I, i um I think there, there really is, I, the, the, the techno-physio evolution in, as we move into the 21st century is as much about the mind and about mental life as it is about bits of substance, right? Replacing bits of substance expended um, in, in productivity. Um, and there's a whole new level around that. Um, But I, I think in a way, the debate around dwindling natural resources has really brought us back. Um, in a, in a sort of brutal way to thinking very physically, very materially. Um, I think, I think for a long time in the 20th century, right, especially in the post-war period, you know, political scientists start talking in the, in the 1980s, start talking about that we're living in a post-material world, right? That, that sort of the horizon of expanding abundance, um, appeared infinite. Um, and, and in the, in the past couple of really generation, we've, we've, been brought back, really forced, Mm -hmm. um, um, by, by climate change and by, um, you know, theories of peak oil and the sense of natural limits to confront the materiality of our needs and to ask about that and to ask on what basis we decide that we need something. Um, and, and, and I think there is a space in light of that to reconsider, um, what needs could be or how we could think about needs. Um, And I I find, you know, sort of um, provocative Herbert Marcuse's notion that true needs, that needs um, will be articulated, sort of needs are articulated in particular social contexts, and that um, if we did manage to um, establish a society um, of of, of free sort of, that, that's, that's free of, of false needs, of repressive needs, of the needs of consumer society, um, that other kinds of needs might begin to emerge. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we'll be able to test that, but I find it really um, provocative. And the unit of
0: analysis has really changed, right? I mean, it's, it's no longer, we don't, when we talk about needs and minimums, we're really no longer just talking about a human person or rather um, what it is to be a human person is now really um, often defined implicitly if not explicitly in terms of kinds of relationality that are very very different um, than the kinds of um, relations that we saw in the case study of the book right the unit of the family or other people it's now very very different
1: yeah I think I think that's a very good point that that um, in a way it's it's become impossible to talk about needs. Um, in an isolated or individual unit, um, and and beyond the family unit, um, needs now have to be thought about in relation as a as a multi species mm-hmm. issue, um, as a, as a global issue. Absolutely. So maybe that's actually a really nice
0: place um, to bring us to our conclusion. So, Dina, we've now um, almost um, come to the end of the hour, and there's, of course, a bunch of stuff that we haven't had a chance to talk about, right? There's a million, billion things in the book um, that are waiting for the attentive reader and that we didn't get to in the course of our conversation. But given that, is there anything specifically that we didn't have a chance to talk to or to talk about, rather, but you'd like to mention for the sake of
1: listeners? I, mean, I think, I think that, that the last conversation is really sort of where my heart is you know in, in, in the book ultimately is is um, to think about needs um, as an expression of social order and and to think about when we talk about need, what we're talking about is the organization of human difference um, is, the, is is social decisions about the distribution of resources, um, and it's about life it's about pieces of life and 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 how we define life um, in in its broadest sense, um, in, in its techno-physio sense, in its relational sense. Um, those those questions are, I, I think, the most alive to me coming out of the book. So now that you've come out of the book, and congratulations on a
0: fabulous book. <laughs> Thank box. you. What's next for
1: you? What's currently inspiring you? and What are you working on now? So... Um, at the moment, I'm writing what I'm calling a, a reparative history of imposter syndrome, um, which is actually, you know, it's, it's, it's a completely different field, but it's very closely connected to the book for me um, because I'm trying to work through sort of um, the effective history of having written this thing. <laughs> um, and the imposter syndrome, um, for those who don't know, is um, this notion that... Um, I'm a fraud, right? That I, I got where I got because of luck. Um, I it, it's, I discount the importance of any achievements I may have have um, you know gained along the way, um, and I and I attribute it all to luck or hard work as opposed to any sort of internal quality. Um, and and the reparative bit came out of a desire to understand and situate my own sort of anxiety and terror around publishing a book. <laughs> which I found totally bizarre because it's sort of completely out of proportion um, to the actual um, potential kind of harm that could emerge from having, you know, a, a bound bunch of paper <laughs> distributed, <laughs> um, you know, to some number, hundreds, if I'm lucky, right, of people. Um, so I, I, I'm trying to go back and kind of understand um, – where this comes from historically, um, and um, what are its consequences for thinking about issues of realism, of the responsibility of knowledge-making, and about um, situated knowledges. So that's another amazing project, and
0: I think many of us, if not all of us, can absolutely sympathize with the effect of experience of putting out um, a book like that so or a book um, in the way that you've described it so best of luck in that project it's again it sounds completely fascinating and thank you so much dana for making time to talk about this fascinating book it's really been a pleasure and, and best of luck thank you carla this has been really fun you've been listening to new books in science technology and society thanks very much for joining us and we'll see you next time